Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, we're releasing a special edition episode to talk about a topic that's been on everyone's minds since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccines. So far, two vaccines have been licensed for vaccination against COVID-19. For ease of description and to be consistent, we'll talk about them as the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And as always with me is John Farragon. So first and foremost, John, what's similar about these two vaccines? Yeah, um, thanks for having me again and uh, we'll talk about vaccines today. So uh, obviously this is on everybody's mind, right? It's an important piece of what everybody's trying to do to uh, to hopefully prevent COVID and hopefully get back to normal at some point. But um, basically the, these two vaccines, you know, they're both using this new technology called mRNA technology. And basically what happens with this is that um, it's basically a description of how the vaccines produce an immune response. So the, cars, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and it's the virus that causes COVID-19, um, has within its structure this spike protein. And, and, and you, if you've heard anything about the virus, I'm sure everybody's probably heard about the spike protein, right? Um, you know, it looks like a crown. That's where the coronavirus name comes from. Um, but the spike protein is really responsible for, for docking uh, onto the cells in the human body. So, so these vaccines actually use this mRNA technology to actually bring kind of the blueprint for the cells to make a spike protein piece. So, so after you've been vaccinated, the body basically um, sees this spike protein and it produces this immune response or an antibody response. And, and that's the antibody response is actually what's causing us to be protected against COVID-19 disease. So, so you know, the studies were, were designed really to show differences in severe COVID-19 infection compared to placebo. So, so one thing that's very important for everybody to understand, a lot of people don't realize that, that the, the, we really don't know whether or not these vaccines will reduce the asymptomatic spread of, of SARS-CoV-2 virus, but we really do think that this is probably gonna be the case. And that's what we have to see, see over time. But after vaccination, um, basically using this mRNA technology, our bodies have basically been taught how to protect against future in, infection from, um, from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, how these work. But the mRNA technology is more like kind of bringing that blueprint in to tell the spike protein to be, um, to, to, to be made. And then, you know, we make the antibody response to that. And that's what protects us. Okay, yeah, that was a really great way to break it down and get us started. Um, so something I've personally noticed is that there's a lot of hesitation from folks about getting the vaccine. So I wanted to go through a few common questions that I've been hearing to clarify any doubts that people might be having. Firstly, can the vaccine give a person COVID-19? Yeah, Mariana, that's a great question. And it's one that we constantly get. We get this a lot from people. People want to know. And according to the CDC and according to what we know so far, they can, you cannot get COVID-19 from the vaccine. Again, uh, because of how the, how the vaccine is, is manufactured in the way it's technology and the way the science is with the mRNA vaccine, um, you cannot get COVID-19. It's not giving you live virus. So there's no risk of contracting COVID-19 um, for, uh, for somebody who's got the vaccine. Now, you can get covid around the time of you getting the vaccine, right? Like you could have, you can get the vaccine on a Monday and be exposed to somebody on like a Tuesday or Wednesday afterwards and, and you don't have that, that adequate immune response. So you can potentially get COVID during the time around you had the vaccination, but 
don't let anybody say that it's the vaccine that's actually caused them to to kind of get COVID because it just it just can't happen based on the science based on what we know so far. Okay, now I've heard you say mRNA a few times. Can the vaccine alter a person's DNA? Yeah, so this is another question we get, and really these they do not affect or interact with our DNA in in, in, in any way. The mRNA technology is is entirely outside of this outside of the nucleus of the cell. So for those of you who know this science, right, the DNA is in the nucleus of the cell. So anything that happens outside of that would not interact with our deep with that would not interact with our DNA. And also the cells actually break down and gets rid of that mRNA soon after after it's, it's finished using those blueprint or those instructions that that's telling it to make that spike protein. Okay, so this vaccine was developed really, really quickly. Are the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines safe? Yeah, so again, another another great question, right? But, um, you know, based on what we know so far, I mean, the studies had, had close to 40,000 patients in them, uh, in each of them. The mRNA uh, vaccines so far have been held really to the same safety methods as other types of vaccines in the U.S. I think the difference is that we, we moved much more quickly and some of the phases were actually overlapped a little bit. So it, 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 an attempt to kind of get this out faster, faster than, than other vaccines. But um, the only uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines that the Food and Drug Administration will make available for the United States, either by approval or emergency use, uh, are those that meet these, these rigorous, rigorous safety, safety standards. And we continue to collect data for people who do get vaccinated, and many of you who have, you may actually know that there's the there's the V-Safe program with CDC. There's another online program that you can go in and, and if you've had side effects, you can, you can list those out. So the CDC and the companies as well are in the FDA are continuing to collect data on safety for these for these vaccines to make sure that they continue to have an adequate safety profile for, for the population that we're using. Okay, so the vaccines are safe and they can't give people COVID-19, but what kind of side effects are possible? Can you talk about some of the potential reactions that people can have? Yeah, I mean, there's always these rare things that people can talk about, like, you know, um, you know I know we've talked about even people with Bell's palsy, right? It's a rare event, but sometimes those things can happen to people. Um, there's there, um, some of the, the uh, some some rare events of, of transverse, uh, transverse myelitis. These are rare Rare events that that almost never never occur, um, but for both um, vaccines, reactions can certainly occur if, after injection. And I think some of the things to think about so so some of the reactogenicity symptoms, and these are the things that usually happen with seven days of getting the vaccine, but are common, um, uh, but were most likely mild to moderate. And so side effects such as fever, chills, tiredness, and headache throughout the body were all common side effects, especially after the second dose of the vaccine. It can still happen on the first dose, but Definitely when you get that second booster, that booster vaccine, at least for the Pfizer and the Moderna, you know, you definitely can see a higher rates of, of adverse events after that second vaccine. But I want to ensure everybody and, and, and reassure everybody that most of these side effects were mild to moderate. Um, but, you know, there are these rare side effects that people have that are severe. Um, there, there, there is a chance that um, some, of these, um, uh, some of these side effects may potentially affect a person's ability to do daily activities. Some people may actually have rare instances of anaphylaxis, right? And those are all reported uh, in the vaccine trials. And, and even as we continue to collect data um, outside of the trials, the, these things can pop, potentially occur. But again, remember, they're very, very rare. And so for the vast majority of, popula- of the population, there's no reason to be concerned about, about getting, getting the vaccine. If you are concerned, 
certainly reach out to your physician and, and, and discuss these or your provider and discuss some of those uh, some of those concerns you might have. Okay, so these are new vaccines and the technology is new for mRNA vaccines. How do we know that you know the whole process of developing them wasn't rushed? Yeah, this one comes up too, and it's kind of similar to, to, to kind of what we've been talking about with safety, right? But but the researchers they've really been studying working with mRNA vaccines for decades, and and the interest has grown recently in these vaccines because they can be developed in the laboratory using readily available materials in. And because in this setting, you know, we really need to get a vaccine out as soon as possible. This process was really standardized pretty quickly so that vaccine development can be faster than some of the older technology that we have typically used for, for vaccines. So um, I want to also just make sure everybody knows that mRNA vaccines have also been studied for other disease states for like flu. If you remember the Zika virus, rabies, cytomegalovirus. Um, and even with cancer research, mRNA technology, very similar to what we use with the vaccines, has been used to help trigger the immune system to target specific cancer cells. So some of this technology with mRNA is, um, while the vaccine piece for these two is, is relatively new, as are two new vaccines, it has been used for other viruses and in other disease states as well as mRNA technology. So it's not, um, while the technology might be new as it relates to the vaccines, the the ideas behind it and, this, and the research behind it is, is not. So I think hopefully people are feel confident that the, that the RNA technology is, um, is an acceptable way for us to administer vaccines. All right. So we know there are two mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna. How are these two vaccines different? Well, the, the, I think the biggest issue that, that we come across with, and you know, especially um, for those who, are, who might be pharmacists listening or familiar with pharmacy issues, we... You know, one of the big issues is storage for these vaccines, right? So the, the biggest issue is that the Pfizer needs to be stored at those ultra low freezing temperatures. So, um, so the Moderna has to be frozen, but not at temperatures as that's required for Pfizer. So um, this is really, um, the, the Moderna is a little bit of an advantage for some places since the freezers that the Pfizer uh, product requires are not commonly found, you know, in, in, in places that you know, and they, they have them in a lot of research labs, I guess I would put it that way. So for example, where, where I work at, at our hospital, we had them in some of the research lab lab areas, but we didn't have them in some of the general areas. So that made it a little bit more difficult. We had to find those find empty freezers for the storage of the, of the Pfizer vaccines. That's really the, the big difference. The other thing which may make a difference for some people is the dosing volume is a little bit different. So Pfizer um, um, requires reconstitution, meaning that you get a vial that's kind of like a powder type of, it looks like, kind of like a powder, and you have to you have to insert um, um, solution into it to reconstitute it, and then you draw the doses out of that vial. And and that Pfizer, that Pfizer dose is only 0.3 mLs, and the Moderna is actually already pre-made into a liquid, and that one you only have to just have to draw it directly out of the vial, and you don't have to reconstitute it. And that's a volume of 0.5 mils. So 0.3 versus 0.5 mils. Some people think that might make a difference for having injection site reactions, but honestly, you know, to date, you know, I don't think there's anything that supports us, that supports that. The point is, is that the most important piece is that they work. Both of the vaccines are almost identical in the number of people who were protected from COVID, from severe COVID-19. And that's really the, the, I think the most important piece. So yeah, arm pain might be a little bit different. Side effects might be a little bit different here or there versus one versus the other. You might hear that from people, but at the end of the day, the bottom line that both vaccines work effectively. And I think that's the that's the, really the, the key piece of it. 
Is the data surrounding the vaccines different? Um, yeah, so so that's that's important. So um, well, you know, there's actually um, some some similarities, right? So so um, the studies were a little bit different in, in their design, but at the end of the day, really the the ultimate uh, uh, efficacy results were, were almost identical. So let's take a closer look, look at the Pfizer vaccine first, and then we'll take a look at at the at the Moderna. So for Pfizer, this is this the BNT 162B2. It's a two-shot, 20 day, 21 days apart vaccine. It does not contain eggs, preservatives, or latex. And, and also this um this Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is recommended for people age 16 years or older. I didn't mention this before, but the Moderna is only 18 and over. The, the Pfizer actually had data with people who were 16 and older. So for a little bit, a little bit lower age cutoff than, uh, than, than the Moderna. Okay. Yeah. So let's get a little bit deeper into the groups of people included in the studies. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is actually important and important, uh, important question that people ask us, right? Um, and most importantly, first of all, the, the Pfizer vaccine was 95% effective in preventing um, laboratory confirmed COVID-19 illness uh, in, in people who, um, who did not have evidence of previous in infection. In the phase two and three trials that, that were conducted for the Pfizer vaccine, including a lot of people from different backgrounds. And so for example, 82% of the people were white, but it also included 26% of people who, were, who identified as Hispanic or Latino. Um, about 10% of patients were African-American, a little over 4% of people were Asian, and then other races and ethnicities, uh, you know, uh, you know, rounded out the, the number of people in, in the study. And, and by age and sex, 50, a little over 50% were male, 49% um, were female. And then 21% uh, of the people who were in the Pfizer studies were actually 65 years or older. So again, those are high risk populations, right? The 65 and older, um, you know, they, uh, those are the patients that we, people were really worried about. And in 20, you know, 21% of, of the patients actually were 65 or older. And I think the other thing that comes up too, people ask us a lot about comorbidities and that's another piece, important piece of, of what we're doing with, with the vaccine and, and who we wanna make sure it gets it. But the most frequent underlying medical conditions were obesity in 35.1%, diabetes uh, was, was diagnosed in 8% and pulmonary disease in about 8% as well. So people with, with obesity, diabetes and pulmonary disease are really probably our highest risk populations and, and they were all included in, uh, in these studies. Um, of, uh, for the uh, for the Pfizer vaccine. Okay, that covers Pfizer. What about the Moderna vaccine? Yeah, so the Moderna one also, Marianne, is very similar, right? This is called, um, it's the mRNA-1273. That's the kind of the, the chemical term for it. But the Moderna is a two-shot, one month apart. So it's 28 days apart. So not 21 for the Pfizer, it's 28 days for Moderna. It also does not have any eggs, preservatives, latex, um, and it's re recommended for 18 years and older. So it doesn't have that 16 to 18 range um, yet. Um, all this, I think all of these two vaccines, I'm sure they're at this point, you know, have studies that are ongoing in people who are, who are younger um, adolescents as, uh, because they you know, obviously the, a big piece is trying to protect them as well as we move forward, especially as we move into the fall and trying to think about next year's, uh, you know, next year's uh, classes. And, you know, hopefully by the summertime, some of this data will be out there. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the the, the the kind of brief overview of Moderna. And what about the efficacy of the Moderna vaccine? How well did it work? Yeah, again, another great question, right? Very similar, almost identical to the to the Pfizer, right? This is ninety four point one percent, so ninety four percent effective 
at preventing uh, laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 illness. And again, this is in people who received both doses and had no evidence of previously being being infected. So it did it did work. And you know, the clinical trials for Moderna are also very similar to what we saw with Pfizer had had diverse racial and ethnic uh, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, 79% were white, 20% 20 Hispanic Latino, about 10% African American, 4.7% um, uh, Asian. And then, and then the, the rest of them are other races and ethnicities. In fact, if you look at those numbers, they're almost identical to what I just said, told you about the Pfizer. So again, very, very similar populations that, that we're looking at. So the, the age and sex, sex breakdown is a um, little bit more higher percentage of patients were male, 53% and 47% female. And then 25% in this study were 65 or, or older. So again, very good, uh, very good numbers and very good numbers that we're trying to look at and, uh, and, and focus on. Um, most people who, who participate in these trials, uh, about 82%, were considered to have an occupational risk of exposure, um, and 25% of those were, were actually healthcare workers. So, again, when you think about the, the, the populations that we're trying to vaccinate, many many healthcare workers, actually most of them probably even potentially even had gotten their second dose, right, because they were part of that 1A group um, for, for initial for initial rollout, and then the 1Bs are now, and those are kind of the firefighters, EMS, and and 65 or older, but um, most people, I think, hopefully have been have been vaccinated at this point. But the one thing that again, asking about high risk uh, populations, 22% uh, uh, had at least one high risk condition, which again included heart disease, uh, lung disease, obesity, diabetes, liver disease, or even uh, treated, you know, treated and uh, under control HIV infection, uh, and about 4% had had two or more high risk conditions. So. Again, there's not a huge number of patients that have had comorbidities, but again, I think it it, it speaks to at least some of the data that we have for some of those for some of those um, some of those populations that that we're really trying to focus on for for the vaccination. Okay, so this is all sounding pretty good to me, and it seems like people are being encouraged to get vaccinated if they can. But are there people who should not get vaccinated? Yeah, so this is a great question, Marianne. It's one that we really should really kind of kind of think about and, and, and kind of uh, kind of understand better as we kind of move forward. But, but right now, I think if anybody's had ever had a severe reaction, anaphylaxis uh, or, or an immediate allergic reaction, even if it was not severe, to any of the ingredients in the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, you really should not get the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. And these are great discussions to have. Oftentimes, if you go to a vaccine clinic, um, especially the, the the well-run clinics, a lot of them have physicians and either have pharmacists there to kind of go over this information with you ahead of time before you actually get vaccinated to make sure you're doing the right thing. Many places have a screening form as well that you have to check check off boxes to make sure that you're, you're being asked those questions specifically. And I just encourage people who aren't getting the vaccine or if you're running a vaccine clinic to make sure you're asking these questions up front. Um, if, you at, if you have had a severe allergic reaction, you know, anaphylaxis, or an immediate allergic reaction, uh, even if it was not severe, uh, after getting the first dose, most people would recommend that you should not get another dose of that of that of, of any of the mRNA COVID nineteen vaccines. So, and in, in these immediate reactions that we talk about include reactions within four hours of getting vaccinated. So, if you if you leave your vaccine site after you get your first dose and you go home and you have hives, swelling, or wheezing, any respiratory distress. You really should um, should not get that second that second dose that booster dose, and these are really important things for people to know because I think think 
people think that, okay, well, you know, I had a reaction, but I should be okay on the second one. That's really where you really want to have your physician or your provider step in and kind of help you to make those decisions for you. The other thing that's rare, but it, these, these do exist, is that these patients uh, can have um, uh, allergies to what we call PEG or polyethylene glycol. So um, polysorbate is another derivative of it, but the, but the PEG is in things like Miralax. So if you've ever, ever had a bowel prep before, you take Miralax, so you take um, the Golightly, the big jug that you have to mix and drink before you have a colonoscopy. The, the main ingredient in those in those products is called polyethylene glycol. It's also used as a as a pegylator, which we call pegylated drugs. It actually allows drugs to last longer because of this pegylation. So pegylated interferon, for example, many of you may have known that from back in the Hep C, Hep C days. So if you have allergies to those that are severe, you know you really have to be careful um, that you should not get the the COVID nineteen vaccine because you can potentially have 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 reactions to this and and what's nice about a lot of these 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 reactions Marianne is that the CDC has a great um, you know list of, of things to kind of be be aware of and be concerned with if you're going to get the vaccine and whether or not you have allergies so the, the CDC continues to keep those that information updated which I think is helpful yeah I know that a lot of people are worried about potential reactions so is there a way for people who got the vaccine to report side effects? Yeah so this is another great question Marianne right and it's really important because we want to know about people who are having side effects because if you weren't in the study you know, there's really no way to know what side effects you're having unless you tell us right so unless you tell your provider or you tell someone so one of the things that you should be getting at least in New York State and I think across I think across the country um, there's what we call this V-Safe. Now, the V-Safe is a smart-based, a smartphone-based tool that actually uses text messages and web surveys um, to kind of provide a personal health check-in after you've gotten your vaccine. So the V-Safe, when you when you leave, you should be getting a, um, a, a handout that has V-Safe information on it. You can either sign up online or it has one of those QR codes that you can take a picture of with your phone and it'll open the app and it'll actually start asking you some questions about your vaccination that day. In fact, I just got mine for my second dose. I just got one today because I got my second dose earlier in the week. It's or, uh, or late last week. It's asking me about how I'm doing today. And so VSAFE, it'll ask you, it'll quickly ask you, are you having side effects? Are you able to go to work today? Did you miss any work? You know, are you having issues with your vaccine? So this VSAFE really is really good. And if you have severe reactions and you put that in there, they may actually potentially contact you or reach out to you for more information, especially if you had anaphylaxis and missed a couple of days or if you had a severe reaction that wasn't anaphylaxis, but still bad enough where they want to learn more about you, they may actually contact you. And there's there's other ways to, to, to report this, but the CDC is really, I think, key in making sure that this V-Safe system re really works. Um, so you should be providing that handout uh, uh, that has the website on it. And again, if you're not savvy with the with the website, um, you know, with the with the QR code, you can use always go to the website. Um, if you're that technically savvy, you know, those QR codes are, are actually are actually nice. The other thing that's really important too, they also have the, the VA, VAERS, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This is a national system that collects reports from healthcare professionals and the vaccine manufacturers and also the public about adverse events that may happen after vaccination. So this is important for us to be aware too, um, especially for the reports of the adverse events that are unexpected or that are rare. You know, I mean, they want to hear about everything, certainly, but I think the ones that are, that are, you know, a little odd or different, they kind of want to know if there's something different that's out of potential signals with, with potential problems. You know, obviously the, the standard stuff like chills, fevers, aches, and pains, you know, pain at the injection site, 
those are common. I don't want to minimize people, you know, I don't want to tell you not to report them, but really some of this is also trying to capture some of the rare, the rare side effects. But really the more you report, the more information they have. And I think it's helpful for, for, for the CDC and also for the FDA as they move forward. And remember these, these are technically not FDA approved yet. They've gone through an FDA emergency use authorization um, evaluation, but they're not approved. And the FDA approvals, I think, are really are, are really kind of crucial to kind of take the next steps to get these to get these uh, you know fully approved. And I think this information does help help to inform some of that. So if they are continue to be proven safe, even in the in the public, when you have millions and millions of people who have gotten them, I think it just supports the approval. So that's helpful for for I think for everybody. Okay. Yeah. So we've gone through quite a bit of information. Can you take us through some of the final takeaways about the COVID-19 vaccines? Anything else that you can think of that's important for people to know? Well, yeah. And again, I, I just want to thank you, Mariana, for actually actually running the, this special edition too. But I think this these are all, all the information that, that we're finding here is obviously hopefully important for not only for providers, but also for patients and anybody who might be listening to the podcast, I think it's helpful. Um, but, but one of the things that comes up, you know, that's a good kind of a kind of a, another thing that's important for people to know is, is can you can a COVID-19 vaccine make you sick with COVID-19? And I think people think that it can, but, but it's really not. I think, you know, none of the authorized and recommended COVID-19 vaccines, um, again, uh, can contain live virus and can cause COVID-19, all right? Um, that means that, that the COVID-19 vaccine cannot make you sick with COVID-19. Now, you might have side effects from it, but it's really not, you're not getting COVID, right? You, you're just having side effects from, from the antibody response that that's you, that's, you know, probably shows you that your body's working uh, to, to make that antibody response. It's not to say that it's not working if you don't have side effects, but really it's important that you to know that people can't get sick from COVID-19 from taking the vaccine. All right. There's there's a lot of different types of vaccines in development as well. Not just these mRNA vaccines. There's other ones that are that are coming down the line that we're going to see probably in the next couple of months and even maybe even in coming years as well. Um, sometimes this uh, um, uh, some each of them they kind of teach our immune system how to recognize and fight the virus. And this process can cause you know a fever, for example. And some of these symptoms can be confused with you know with actually COVID nineteen symptoms, which I think is is a little complex, but Typically, for most people, that's going to take a few weeks for the body to build that immunity and to, to really be protected against the virus that causes COVID-19 after vaccination. That means it's possible for a person to be infected with the virus that causes COVID-19 just before or after vaccination. And I think I alluded to this earlier. Um, and this is because the vaccine has not had enough time to provide protection. And you really, to provide the best protection, you know, it's, it's probably two to three weeks after you've gotten that second dose is when you're fully protected. Now, again, we're still recommending masks and everything else, but you know, you're 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 probably pretty pretty well protected from from at least from getting COVID-19. The question is, can you still give it to somebody if you have COVID-19 in your nasal passages? And that's why we're continuing to use masks and social distancing, washing hands, all the things that we've been doing for the last it's probably since March, right, of, of last year. So um, after um, getting the COVID vaccine. Will you test positive for COVID-19 on a viral test? We get this question quite a bit. And, and no, this, this cannot happen. Um, the, the tests that are that are there for, for COVID-19 um, uh, that are um, after you've received the vaccine, um, there is no mechanism for the COVID-19 tests that are available for you to test positive on those tests. So again, that's a, that's a common question that we get. And really, um, uh, we should just be aware that, that this is something that probably is not, is not going to happen. All right. We're, we're current, uh, currently looking how 
looking at how the vaccine vaccination may affect antibody testing, antibody testing results. But as far as active COVID-19 with the antigen tests or the PCR nasal swabs, the deep nasal swabs that a lot of people are, have gotten um, are, are, are not going to be positive after you've had a vaccine. You can't cause them to, to, be, to be positive. So um, now, again, going back, right, you could potentially have had COVID in the middle of your vaccination cycle, right, before you're protected. But, you know, and then so that would happen. But the vaccine itself can't cause a positive test. So the one question we get a lot, too, is after you've had COVID-19 recovered, do I still need to get vaccinated with a COVID-19? And, and the answer is, at least today, as I'm speaking today, and this is, this is in the middle of towards the end of January, yes, that is the case. Now, the guidelines may change, but right now, if you've already had COVID-19 and recovered, the recommendation currently right now is to still get vaccinated with a COVID-19 vaccine. So due to the health, um, the severe health risk with, associated with COVID-19, and the fact that reinfection can potentially occur, although it's very rare, vaccine is being offered to people regardless of whether or not you already had COVID-19 infection. And the CDC is really providing uh, recommendations to federal, state, and local governments about who should be vaccinated first. So at this time, the experts, they don't really know for sure how long somebody is protected. Most likely it's 90 days or more. Um, so there are some people that might say, well, geez, maybe you should wait 90 days before you get your vaccine if you've had COVID-19. But again, the recommendation is not is not to do that at this point. We really want people to make sure they get vaccinated, even if they've had COVID-19 in, in, in the past. There is some evidence in some patients that that natural immunity may not last very long as well. So again, another reason to make sure that people get, people get vaccinated. And then the thing too that some people will talk about is that both natural immunity and some of the vaccine-induced immunity um, together might be important. It might provide different aspects of COVID-19 protection. So that's something that the CDC and in the DOH, uh, the, the Department of Health across the country are trying to, to kind, of, kind of figure out. And then um, a good one here is, is, is another one is about COVID-19 vaccination. vaccination. Will it protect people from getting sick with COVID-19? And that's a yes. It's a firm yes. That's what the data showed. That's actually what was, that's, was this design of the study. They gave people, people placebo, so basically like a saline injection. And then they gave people vaccine and they said, what's the risk of COVID-19 severe disease? And it was, it was, it was dramatically reduced in the people who had gotten the vaccination, um, uh, 95% effective in, in, the, in the Pfizer, 94% roughly in the Moderna. So again, really good, really good numbers. But being protected from getting sick is really important for us though, because even though many people with COVID-19 have only a mild illness, there's the other patients get severe illnesses. And I think one of the hardest things for us to do is predict who's going to get really sick when they come into the hospital. Is this person going to be the one that winds up in the ICU that needs to be intubated? Or is it going to be one of the people who just goes to the floor for a couple of days and gets some oxygen and goes home? It's really impossible for us to predict who those patients are. I think that's the one thing that I think that I think if, if um, any physician who's doing COVID work would like to have is a predictive test that would say who's going to get sick and who's not really sick. And I think the nice part about this, these vaccines is that um, severe illness was actually reduced dramatically in, in, these, in these studies. So again, I encourage you to get your vaccine. It really does make a difference and it's going to protect all of us in, in, in the long run. But again, learning more about how these COVID-19 vaccines work and more importantly, will they, will they reduce asymptomatic transmission, right? So that's really going to be the key piece to what we want to know. And then once, once we have that piece of data, I think it's really going to be helpful for us to to really encourage every single person to get vaccinated. And once everybody is uh, a significant proportion of the population is, is, 
this vaccinated, we can potentially, hopefully, you know, uh, get to a point where we don't need to wear masks and we don't have to worry about all the things we've been worried about, worrying about over the last over the last year or so. So really good, really good, good information, I think, in this in this podcast today. All right, John, one final question. As you know, we are an AIDS education and training center. So what about vaccine data in HIV infection? Yeah, so this is another question that comes up, Marianne, and I think, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm thankful that you've asked it, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad we're covering it today. Um, so I actually had to go back into the studies to find it. You have to go dig, right, because they don't always have, it's not always right up front in the, you know, in the front of the paper, right, that they had patients with HIV infected in, in the studies. But they did actually had pa- patients who were all well-controlled, and that's the important piece. So they didn't have people who, you know, who had just recently got infected and have high, vir- high viral loads or, or low CD4 counts. These were all undetectable patients doing well on their therapy um, with longstanding HIV infection, but, but doing well. Um, and in the Pfizer uh, study, there was 121 patients in their studies with HIV infection. That's about 0.3% of the population. 59 of them received the vaccine and the, and the rest received placebo, right? So you only have about 59 people in that study who actually got, who had HIV infection and actually got the vaccine. Um, for the Moderna, it's, um, it, it was a little bit more, there's 179 patients and 92 of them received the vaccine and the rest received placebo. So again, if you add those up, it's, it's roughly, you know, about 100, 100 and, um, um, 150 patients roughly, Little over 150 patients actually got the got the vaccine between the Pfizer and the Moderna study. So again, not a lot of people, but at least there's some data. And the fact that they included those patients in the study, I think, is really a, a testament to how well I think well the studies studies were designed. Now, what we haven't seen is a separate analysis of just those patients to see how they did. But I would assume I have no reason to believe that there's going to be any reduction in response uh, to those to those patients. And and again, we have to look at that, at, at that, at that further uh, going, going forward. But, you know, you know, this is, I, I think, and again, I, I mentioned this before, I'll say it again, this is, uh, I think, a great topic for us to be covering uh, today with today's podcast, Marianne. I thank you for, for asking some of these great questions, though. Thank you so much, John. We covered quite a lot today. It's really important for people to keep in mind that this information changes quickly, so please be sure to stay informed. The CDC, FDA, and state DOH programs are all being updated, so be on the lookout for additional vaccine availability in your area. Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are likely next in line, but it's critical that we stay up to date on this changing situation on vaccines with information from reputable sources. I think it's safe to say we all need a break from COVID. And so let's hope that the distribution of these vaccines will be the beginning of the end of the pandemic. We really hope you learned something new today to learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic. Visit us at www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at N-E-C-A-A-E-T-C dot org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our regularly scheduled episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, 
of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.